0: This podcast is supported by Federated Hermes Limited. Since 1983, we have been focused on delivering sustainable wealth creation, aiming to enrich investors, society, and the environment over the long term. Federated Hermes Limited, a global leader in active, responsible investment. Professional investors only, capital at risk. I am pretty confident that most of us know what COP is the United Nations Climate Conference, the Conference of the Parties, COP. It meets every year and has been doing so since 1995, though COVID disrupted plans two years ago. It is where government representatives meet and climate commitments are announced. But it isn't just a gathering of heads of state, ministers, public sector officials and environmental observers. Increasingly, Business and finance have been turning up, organising side events and making announcements of their own. Last year in Glasgow, G-Funds, the Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero, spearheaded by former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, said that it had the support of banks and investors with a combined $130 trillion in assets. COP26 became a sort of finance COP. This year, COP27 will be hosted by Egypt in Sharma Sheikh. Some hope it will become known as the Africa COP. I'm recording this a week from COP, and over the past few weeks, months really, there have been growing talks about the responsibility of the world's richest countries towards developing economies. Like many other emerging markets, African countries' contribution to climate change is minuscule, but they are among the most exposed to its effects. They are also under pressure to decarbonize, to keep fossil fuels in the ground. As things stand, this would slow their economic growth, while support from industrialised economies is uh, largely lacking. Some of those African countries are pushing back. One of our writers, James King, has recently looked at African government's point of view on all of this. James has reported on and travelled across Africa for a number of years.
1: You know, Africa bears almost zero responsibility for... The current climate crisis, I think estimates put Africa's emissions since the industrial era at around 2% of the global total. So it's, it's almost nothing. But, but today, uh, the continent is being hit possibly harder than anywhere else in terms of the consequences of, of this emergency. Um, and you can see that with respect to, um, sea levels rising faster across Africa than elsewhere. Um, and, and also in terms of, you know, droughts and other climate, um, disasters that are hitting the most vulnerable communities on that continent the hardest. Um, and so from the perspective of African governments, um, this is an extremely urgent question. Um, and I think that we saw a meeting of Africa's climate and finance ministers, um, gathering in, in Cairo, uh, in September. They pointed to the fact that bearing the brunt of the crisis but developed markets have failed to live up to their promises uh, particularly around funding so um, back in 2009 the advanced economies promised Africa 100 billion dollars a year in in total financing to support their climate uh, needs and so far they have failed to live up to that promise and they're falling um, still well short of that total so I think there's some Real frustration on the part of African governments about that failure, and I think that um, they're pushing back now and they're saying, look, we we can't have an abrupt divestment from from fossil fuels when we bear no responsibility and we're also getting no support from from the advanced markets.
0: And it's not just a matter of fairness. What happens in Africa in terms of climate change is likely to have repercussions elsewhere in the world.
1: It really does in a way because there's been some some, some fascinating research around this in terms of the future uh, of Africa's growth trajectory in terms of its economy, but also in terms of its population. And what's interesting is that when you look at the world today, um, across Europe uh, and large parts of, of Asia, as well as Latin America, we're seeing population growth either stall or or even reverse um in, in some cases but in Africa it's actually the opposite picture um so population growth according to the UN um is expected to really accelerate um between now and 2060 um with the total number of people um increasing to 3 billion by 2060 from 1.3 billion today um and and with that population growth uh we're going to see CO2 emissions um, rise in tandem. Um, and there's some research, um, by, uh, by Jack Goldstone, who's from George Mason University, that suggests that based on that trend, um, and, um, Africa's CO2 emissions, um, could be equivalent to, to what the U.S. is putting out today. Um, if it's, um, if it's, uh, you know, per capita increases on the continent match that of India today, so basically it does matter and uh, you know it, it, it will be, uh, as Jack Goldstone says, uh, the battle for Earth's climate will be fought um, in Africa.
0: So what can be done? Private capital, as always, has a role to play. Many, including the Net Zero Assetone Alliance and Investor Group, are calling for greater use of blended finance. This type of financing means that a development bank would absorb part of the risk of an investment, and by doing so, attract larger pools of private capital. But there is more to it. Yeah, it's, it's a very
1: complicated issue. I, I think you know, uh, blended finance certainly has a role to play, uh, particularly um, in terms of catalysing uh, you know more private sector participation in Africa's climate finance needs. Um, looking at some research um, today, I think you know private you know, the private sector contribution to Africa's climate finance is around 14% of the total today. So it's extremely low. And it's low relative to, to other emerging uh regions. So I think that's an interesting point to emphasize there. Um and the other question here is you know, around the risks, either real or perceived, that exist um, when looking at sort of the investment landscape in Africa. And I think that you know a lot of the issues that are that are sort of highlighted by perhaps the investment community um, are valid in some sense because you could look at somewhere like South Africa, um, which has really extensive climate finance requirements today. Um, and one of the largest uh, needs, actually, on the continent. Um, but as we speak, the government is, you know, potentially facing gray listing by FATF, which would have an absolutely devastating impact on that country's investment climate. And that links back to poor governance. And that's corruption. And that's, you know, other issues which are domestic in nature and which will have, you know, in turn a, a pretty significant impact on, on the country's potential as a, sort of climate finance destination, if you like. So I think there's a, a complex web of issues here. Um, and, you know, in terms of local capacities, uh, in terms of the financial marketplaces and so on, there definitely is a role for uh, development finance institutions and other players to to step up and to try and improve, um, you know, some of those local... Um, Capacities, expertise, and know-how when it comes to, to to climate finance. So I think there's there's a a few dimensions to that question, but uh, none of them are easy to solve.
0: That was James King, one of our Sustainable Views correspondents. I also recently caught up with uh, Gillian Marcel. She has a consultancy, Resilience Capital Ventures, based in Washington, D.C. Gillian has an eclectic career. She's worked in finance at J.P. Morgan, in development finance at the World Bank Group. She has worked in academia and has led projects across emerging markets, including Africa. I first virtually bumped into Gillian on social media. We started talking. She has strong and interesting views. She even wrote an opinion piece for Sustainable Views on sustainable finance and how it is just a first world option. You will find the link to her piece in the show notes. So I asked Julian about blended finance too. The facts are that there
2: is $80 billion of financial capital that comes to emerging markets. You know, these are estimates that are actually quite current. And of that, only $14 billion come from the commercial sector. So, in fact, developing banks, philanthropists, foundations, and governments, you know, so old fashioned uh, bilateral development aid, is doing maybe five times as much as commercial finance. And so, while there is this conversation about the need for there to be more political will, and for different kinds of um, architectures and so on. That's not the issue because the part of the financial system that is actually mispricing risk is the commercial side of the equation. And that has always been the case. So for example, commercial investors would have completely missed the African telecommunications revolution 20 years ago because their own systems of pricing risk are not very familiar with the conditions on the ground in emerging markets. And they actually look at some of the wrong metrics. And so, yes, having blended finance architectures would help, but you would have to have the kind of blended finance architectures that we speak about at Resilience Capital which is blended capital finance that is not only concerned about where are the sources of financial capital going to come from but actually seeing blended finance as a strategy that involves more than financial capital because unless you are actually shifting perceptions unless you are improving the ability of the sources of capital to actually allocate Financial capital, which means that you need knowledge capital, political capital, social capital. You need more contextual understanding. You need to have subject area specialists in those transactions. You need not only to hire emerging market specialists, because that would suggest that you're still maintaining the same structure of the financial system. What you need to be doing is to be building up and strengthening the financial ecosystems around the world. So you need to have transactions where the structure of the transaction involves, you know, the leading players as well as domestic and regional players. Because then it's not about, you know, I'm I'm not going to call any names, but it's not about bulge bracket banks. I've worked for them, hiring emerging market specialists. It's about the financial markets in the developing world being strengthened.
0: Okay, financial markets in the developing world need to be strengthened. As we continue talking, Gillian said that she's seeing some signs of progress in some parts of those markets, which is encouraging. But what about COP? Is it going to help discussions around climate financing? Is it going to be the Africa COP? So it is the Africa COP,
2: And I'm so delighted to see the kind of positioning and the really sophisticated analysis that is coming out of a number of organizations, the Center for Global Development in Washington, DC, the Africa Center in New York, the uh, Sustainable Energy for All project, all led By really uh, brilliant Africans. So, Africans based in the diaspora. And what are the things that they are bringing to the table? They're bringing several things to the table, but I think the most important is that Africa represents the climate needs of Africa, including energy, represents some $3 trillion by the end of the decade. That's a Fairly sizable number. It also would be investment that would be geared at providing electrification systems, because what African leaders are saying is that it is not okay for the West or uh, you know advanced wealthy countries to determine what the climate agenda of any developing country region is and certainly not to determine what the African climate agenda is because for example the international NGOs who are very um, strident in their calls for all fossil fuels being left in the ground and you know that sort of thing is 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 gathering momentum outside of the continent and the sanguine voices and the pragmatic voices in uh, across the continent, including places like UNEC, are saying, hang on, who gets to decide what resources are left in the ground when you're not making the same calls of Norway? Neither are you effective in stopping even coal-fired power plants across Europe, but the." The, uh, the patronizing approach, even from progressive NGOs, is to declare that no fossil fuel um, explorations and development should take place across the continent. And so that's being rejected out of hand, because if you look at cumulative emissions, Africa barely features on the radar. Of cumulative emissions that have actually caused global warming and caused the climate catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, even from a moral point of view, there is no legitimacy for advanced wealthy economies demanding that they have an oversized view in shaping the African agenda. And of course, climate change effects are being felt. Now, it's not some point in the future. The Sahel is already declared to be uninhabitable. You had over a thousand lives lost in floods in Durban. There are droughts. There is the uh, effect on agriculture and so on. And so the African continent is already experiencing the effects of climate change. And so there is also a strong support for the loss and damage provision.
0: So loss and damage is a term used to describe the progress of establishing liability and compensation for loss and damage caused by man-made climate change. As we said earlier, some countries, emerging markets, have contributed far less to the climate crisis but are suffering much more because of it. Gillian would like to see the issue addressed at COP in addition to other points.
2: So I think that there are there are three things. One is certainly the loss and damage provisions being uh, respected. Secondly, that the private sector and any of the parties to COP that made pledges actually live up to their pledges. That's the second, and then third is coming back to the, you know, the conversation or the issue that we were just discussing to actually make sure that we are defining and deploying climate finance where it is not 70% debt, where we are using sophisticated reimagined blended finance strategies so that you can have ecosystem strengthening across the world. So that when we are talking about using uh, financial strategies for blue carbon, when we are discussing things like um, uh, seagrass as a source of um, a, a source of carbon sequestration, when we are discussing adaptation funding, that the awareness about that, the technical competence to do it, and also the acknowledgement that the civilizations, the communities that have been stewarding the planet are not the ones that have the financial pools of capital. Mm-hmm. So that there is there really is, um, and I think people, some people, um, especially around the loss and damage, are very reluctant to sort of get into the narrative, the meta issues around really has the legitimacy to speak for stewardship of the planet and so therefore how we now move forward with acceleration and so i think glasgow was an excellent example of misuse of power the large financial institutions swept in private jets and they made announcements you know they had you know all of that stuff about $130 trillion of assets under management, nothing has happened. And there are lots of excuses and reasons why that is the case. I'm sure you've been uh, covering and, and, and following all of that very closely, where the bulge bracket banks are recognizing that there isn't in their own societies, support for these issues, because it comes at a sacrifice.
0: What Julian is referring to in that last point includes the rise of anti-ESG sentiments and a backlash against financial companies because of their environmental policies. We have seen a fair bit of this in the US where Republican states are cutting ties with those banks and asset managers. Some of them seem to be softening their stance on fossil fuels. There is quite a lot for COP to take on. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Gillian and James. I will add links to their articles and any other relevant pieces in the show notes. And thank you to my producer, John Rogers. We'll find each other again in two weeks for the next episode of Sustainable Views, the podcast. This podcast is supported by Federated Hermes Limited, a global leader in active, responsible investment. We follow three pathways, active ESG, sustainability, and impact. Three routes to one destination, sustainable wealth creation. Capital at risk, professional investors only.